Good morning. It's great to be with you here at our Desert Springs family. Uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is Pastor Rick Eford. I had the privilege of serving here as pastor for about 30 years until we transitioned and Caleb took that leadership role. And I was here for a short time and then uh, became full-time the director of church partnerships at Phoenix Seminary, where I have the privilege of working with pastors in our community and beyond, helping to encourage them and network them and then resource them in a variety of ways. But it's so good to be back with you this morning. Caleb asked me if I would join in this series on Psalms, and I just think it's, we'll look at the Word in just a minute, but any time before we open the Bible, it's a good thing to, to talk to the author. So would you probably pray with me, and uh, let's ask him to guide us this morning. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your presence with us this morning. Though we're scattered in many different places, uh, you are with every single one of us, and we pray that even as we open the Bible today, like the psalmist said, that you'd open our eyes that we might behold marvelous, wonderful truths out of your word. So we pray this today, Father, in a way that would be honoring to you and helpful for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are a lot of four-letter words that we oftentimes use and certainly hear, but one of the words that I would love to strike from our vocabulary entirely is the word fear. And yet I'm afraid that it's with us like a constant little dog that nips at our heels and sometimes a very ferocious one. Fear is something that seems to be our constant companion. Matter of fact, if you look at Channel News 12 at, in the evenings, it will say facts, not fear. And there's a lot of reasons why, even beyond the normal time that we would have fears in our lives. COVID-19 is one of those things. There's health concerns, especially for those of us that are over 60 years of age and in that, that more vulnerable part of the community. There's economic fears, and I don't say this tritely, but God only knows where this is going to go. Uh, we look at issues as far as even the effect on churches. What's that going to have when we're not able to meet together for a long periods of time? And so there's a lot of concern and need for fear. We look at the election that's coming up right now, and we say there's also a place of fear. You know, I see both sides and coming at this thing and trying to play on our fears. I heard a guy on the radio today just talk about if Donald Trump is reelected, it scares me to death, and it was about health care issues. On the flip side, I see Trump's campaign using fear with an elderly lady trying to call 911 and say if Joe Biden is elected, then, then there's going to be the elimination of 911 and the defunding of police. Both of those are playing on our fears, and that's a part of where we are. You know, George Barna, the organization, has its most recent report called Trauma in America. And it's about the different ways that we've been traumatized as a culture, the way that we're seeking to live in fear or having to do that. And yet it says that the church offers hope, even in the midst of this. And his study goes into how we as church we as followers of Jesus can provide hope into a very difficult and fearful situation. See, fear is a normal part of life, even before COVID-19. It's something that has been with us since the beginning of time. That's why in the Bible, the most often stated, repeated command is, don't be afraid, fear not. Matter of fact, some people have looked at it and said there's at least 365 times in the Bible that it says, don't be afraid in one form or another. Think about it, that's one for every day of the week. And it's evident that God knows that we need that repeated reminder, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. 
And the reason why we say that is in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, it says this, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but a power of love, of self-control, or a sound mind. God's not given us a spirit of fear. It's coming from someone else. And so that's not how we need to be governing our lives. So it also says in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, some of my favorite verses, it says, be anxious for nothing. Don't be afraid about anything. Don't let fear paralyze you, but pray about everything. It doesn't say just don't be afraid. It gives us something to do. Pray about everything with thanksgiving, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's really what that text says. We're thanking God for what he's done, and we focus on who God is and his character. We know in this series that's being done on the Psalms, Basically, the Psalms are either hymns of praise or they're prayers that people have done. And so when Caleb had asked me to join in this, our focus today is praying through our fears. And that's exactly what it talks about in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Don't be anxious for anything. Pray about everything with thanksgiving. And the psalm that we've selected to work through on this is a very familiar psalm to many. It's often cited, especially at funerals and Places like that, it's the 23rd Psalm, the Shepherd Psalm. And that's the focus of this morning that we're going to look at from the book of Psalms. Here is something that one commentator has said. The Psalm is written consistently from the perspective of the sheep. Unless you don't know it, that's you and that's me. Because it says, the Lord is my shepherd, God himself, and we are his sheep. That is the expression of trust and confidence presupposes an awareness of our helplessness and need on the part of the one who trusts. That would be you and that would be me. When we look at this psalm, and we're going to read it in just a moment, you're going to find that God is our loving and wise shepherd. When we are fearful that we don't have enough, we're reminded that God is our provider. When we are fearful that we don't know what to do, we don't know where to go, we understand and remember that God points the way. And when we're fearful that we're victims, we're powerless over our circumstances and maybe those powerful people that are in our lives, we need to remember that he is our protector. And so as you listen to the psalm that's going to be read, I ask you to think about and look at those words and see if that's not what you're hearing. Now let's just pause for a moment wherever you are and just take a moment. If you want to open the Bible, that's fine. But listen to the words of the psalm as it is being read. Psalm chapter 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. For you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life 
and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. As you just heard, the psalmist, David, starts out, and this is a summary statement of the entire psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I will not be in need. Another way to look at this is that God, and we'll see later, that God is identified with Christ, who is God in the flesh. God, or Christ, is our wise and loving shepherd, and we will never lack what we need, as he defines what we need. Now, the first thing about this, this is a figure of speech. It's a metaphor. It's about a shepherd. It was very common in the land of Israel where they were a pastoral society, meaning there were sheep and goats all over. There were shepherds. At the time that this was written, they understood this very well. Not so much in our urban culture, our more modern culture. But it's still important to understand what are, who are shepherds and what do they do. The shepherd's role was to lead. The shepherd's role was to feed. The shepherd's role was to protect. The shepherd's role was to care and to care for those sheep. Frequently through the scripture, it most oftentimes talks about literal shepherds who had a flock of animals. But oftentimes it also talked about human leaders, those who were in the government, kings and prophets and priests, those people that were in judging positions who would be giving direction to the people. Those were known as the shepherds of the people. Throughout scriptures, especially in the Psalter and other places, God is seen as the shepherd, in particular, shepherding Israel. And in particular, an example of that historically is when he led them out of the land of Egypt like a shepherd would lead a flock of people. And yet there's specifically a focus when I said that God, Yahweh, is also Christ. We see that Jesus is known as the good shepherd in John 10. And we're going to see a parallel between John 10 and Psalm 23 this morning as I develop that. There, there is a, a professor that I had used in seminary, and, and I've known him, Dr. Ron Allen. He was at Western Seminary at the time. And he talked about how he was trying to, his, his focus was the Older Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. He was trying to build a connection with some of the rabbinic community, the rabbis in the Portland area where he was. And so he asked them, would you teach me how to do Hebrew and to know it better? And after he built a relationship, they said, well, we would love to know how to do the Greek New Testament. Would you teach us Greek? And so he said, sure. So he starts teaching these rabbis the book of John in Greek Testament. And they come to this chapter 10, and there is one of the rabbis that's reading in Greek, and he gets to the point where he says, where the Lord Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And he takes the text and he throws it down the table, Dr. Allen said. And he said, that, 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 that Nazarene is claiming to be God. And he got it exactly right. It's exactly what Jesus was claiming when he said, I am the good shepherd. Is that he is the shepherd, the same shepherd. Yahweh, the Lord God, is my shepherd. I shall not want that's the perspective that's here. So anytime we look at it today, it's not just God generally, but it's God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is with us and our shepherd. We see in this that the good shepherd perverts nourishment and refreshment for our souls. You see that in the first three verses. 
where he says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures and verdant and lush pastures, some place that's not only good to eat, but it's also a place of restorative in a desert environment. He leads me beside the still waters, it says. That's not stagnant ponds, and it's not rap- rapidly ripping rapids that are there, you know, that would scare the sheep, but it's a gentle flowing and pooling type of fresh water. And then he goes on to say, he makes me lie down beside the still waters and he restores my soul. When we don't know that there's going to be enough, we need to be reminded and thank God that we have a good shepherd who provides for us what we need. He provides that restorative and renewal and the the way for our souls to really be renewed. You know, in John 1.10.10, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He's talking about the enemy. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about false teachers. They come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I came to give life and to give it abundantly. The restoring of the soul, that's what this is talking about. The focus is we do it to abide in Christ. We're to focus on him and let him renew us and restore our lives. We also need to know that when we're fearful of not, we don't know where to go, that the good shepherd is there to point us the way, to point us to the safe and secure path to be able to go on. And then he prods us to follow him. We see that in verse 3, the second half. He leads me in the paths of righteousness, it says, for his name's sake. He's saying that he is going to give me a true way to go and a way that may not seem the right. Matter of fact, it may seem harder but it is the better way. It's the safer way. It's to live within the context of who I am and how God designed me to be. You know, in the wisdom literature of Israel, Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says, the fear or the respect of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, of how to live skillfully. We need to say it starts with God. It starts with respecting him, with respecting his word, with respecting his directives and trusting him that his way is the best for us, whether we feel that or not. He is saying he points us in the right way, in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see, you and I live in such a way that, that it's not just our reputation that's on the line, it's also Christ's. Because we represent him to a world that desperately needs to see a different way of living and a more confident and secured way of living And that we have a confidence even in confusing times as to where we go. And that's what we should be doing. John chapter 10 verse 4 where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He also said, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. See, the issue is the more we know Jesus, the more we know where he wants us to go and how he wants us to live. And then we follow. When my wife Emily and I were visiting some of our One of our missions to Africa, I'm not sure which one it was, but we stopped to visit some of our missionaries, Tom and Lucy Blanchard, who were in France. And we went for a walk with them there in the foothills of the Alps. And we came across this farmer and and actually the sheep. And Tom and Lucy were telling us about how those sheep had gotten out of their pasture. And they tried to get them back in, but they wouldn't pay attention. So they went and told the farmer. And the farmer said, of course, they don't know you. They don't know your voice. What a great picture of what Jesus is saying. If we're walking with Jesus, if we're living for him, if we know him and his spirit lives within us, which is true for each of us as a child of of God through Christ, then we know his voice. We can trust his voice and we will follow him. 
He goes ahead of us. He doesn't like drive the sheep like a Western cattle drive would be. He goes before us and he leads the way and he sets the example. He points us and he prods us. You know, one of the things that's so important with this is that we need to spend time in his word. We need to understand what is truth and what is not. And we need to understand the heart of God that he's giving us this direction as a wise and loving shepherd, but also parent for what is in our best interest, as well as in to reflect the honor of who he is. The third thing that we see in these passages is even when death threatens, the good shepherd protects us from harm by his presence and by his power. Look at what it says. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What a great picture that is that, you know, sometimes, as I said, Christ points the way and he prods us to follow it. It's not the easy path, but it is the safer path. It is the way that we should follow. But sometimes that's really scary to us because we're trusting and and it looks like that this is a way that leads to death, but it actually leads to life. Are we going to trust the shepherd? Well, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I'm fearful of everything that's around me, yet I will fear no evil. I'm not going to be afraid. Why not? Because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your presence and your power is what I'm leaning on. You know, I, I tell you what, I, a number of years ago, many of you are aware, if you've been around Desert Springs very long, that I have a sister who is probably the best athlete in the family, and yet she died in her sleep at 32 years of age, totally unexpectedly. We had no idea that there was anything wrong. And I remember the Sunday that I'd come back after being with the family for that, there was a woman that, that met me following the service, and she said, I got to tell you, I've been scared to death. I've been scared to even go out of my house. And I don't know if she was afraid of being in a car wreck or an accident or in these days, it might be in our house, sequestered away, fearful of, of getting a disease like COVID or something else. But she would not even leave the house because of fear. And she said this, she said, but when you said that your sister died in her sleep at home in her own bed, I realized like, what a safe place. What safer place could you be? And I didn't need to be afraid because God's in charge. Man, I grieve the death of my sister and still grieve it when the anniversary rolls around. But I am so thankful for that woman and for her understanding that she can trust that good shepherd to protect her even though she's fearful of what may happen in the valley of the shadow of death. You know, just today, I went, I got, went to the doctor. It was the end of a whole bunch of different things that were going on. It started as a routine physical. And I go to the doctor, and they said, well, there's some things we don't like, so we need you to go get an MRI, and we need you to do this blood work, and then we need you to do an ultrasound, and then we need you to do this exploratory deal and do a biopsy. Well, all those are pretty scary words when you start stringing them together. And so today was the day that I went back to the doctor, and I walked into the doctor's office, and I'm waiting for him there, and trying to get my mind off of what could be coming because he had already said this is cancer screening. And when he walked through the door, he very nonchalantly said straight up, he says, well, I know somebody that doesn't have cancer. I thought, yes, that's good news. And he said, you're the only person I've been able to say that to today. I'm sorry for those other people, but I'm very thankful that that's the case. 
But I got to tell you, it's caused me to reflect, what if it were the case? And I, like so many other people of my friends and even this church family that I've walked through with cancer or some other disease like that. We don't have to fear evil, friends, for Christ is with us. His rod and his staff as the shepherd's tools are there to protect us. That staff to gently guide and that rod to protect us against predators and those that would do us harm. And even death itself, Christ has overcome that through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. In John 10, it says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And because of his example, because of his death on the cross, I don't have to fear that. You don't have to fear that. And no matter even the path that it leads to that, we can trust that he is with us. He's promised to never leave us and never forsake us. I got to tell you, in over 40 years of pastoral ministry, 30 here and 10 in other places, I've walked with a lot of people who have had to look death right in the eye, and they've walked through that door that we call physical death. I can tell you there's an amazing difference between those who know Christ, know his love, know his acceptance, and they face it without fear, and those who don't know him. There's a marked difference between the two. My prayer for you is, my prayer even for myself, is that I would so know the shepherd, know his love for me, that I would not fear, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And I pray that for you as well. You know, it sort of shifts in the verse now, and some people look at this as just a continuation of the shepherd's psalm. Others would say, and other commentators would say, it shifts from the metaphor of a shepherd to the metaphor of a gracious host. When he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil so that my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, I think this idea of God being a gracious and generous host where it says basically that he will provide abundantly and lavishly all that we need as he determines that for as long as we need it. That's what I do think these verses in 5 and 6 say. When others reject us and seek to do us harm, did you hear that? Even in the presence of my enemies, you have provided a banquet table. Remember that God loves us. He accepts us and he abundantly provides for us. When we're fearful of the future, what's to come? Remember that God will never leave us, and he will never forsake us. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth, the risen Christ said to his followers. That's the truth of the word. You know, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says this, the apostle, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, all things. And usually we see that as a motto that's emblazoned on athletic gear or shoes or helmets or shoulder pads, something like that, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It really has very little to do with athletic competition. If you look at the verses before that, it has to do with finances. Paul was in prison. And he's saying, look, thank you for the gift that you sent. It's providing for me. And if people didn't send gifts to Roman prisoners, they didn't eat. He's saying, I've learned through my life to deal with a lot, and I've learned to deal with the little. In either case, I'm okay, for the secret is contentment with what God provides. 
This is not a health and wealth gospel that's being stated here. He is saying, though, that God will provide everything that we need for as long as we need it. You provide a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, which is what a gracious host would do. So much so that my cup, my position in life overflows. That's the beauty of what this is. When Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, his context was, I know how to get along with a little. I know how to get along with a lot. And the secret we find in first chapter 1, verse 21 of Philippians, when it says, for to me, whether I live or I die, is to be pleasing to Christ. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's the heart and soul of the sheep who knows the shepherd, the good shepherd. You know, David, who wrote this, was often in the presence of his enemies. Sometimes it was the Philistines in the land. Sometimes it was Goliath. Sometimes it was King Saul, who saw him as a a competitor and wanted to kill him. Sometimes it was from his own son and family members, Absalom in particular. And David had to run for his life. He spent much of the time before he was a king hiding out in caves. And even after he became the king, Absalom's trying to steal and take the throne away from him. It's possible that this psalm was written at that time so that when David says, in the presence of my enemies, you've provided a banquet spread for me so that much that my cup overflows. And surely goodness and mercy, surely your goodness, God, surely your loving kindness, your mercy, someone would say that is his loyal love is another adequate translation for that or appropriate translation. It means his loyal covenant love for his people. That's the picture that's here. Will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in your house, meaning in fellowship with you and with your people in the temple. That's probably what's being talked about here. Not eternity, but certainly what we experience today in fellowship with people and in the body of Christ and even within groupings and congregations is reflective of a much greater fellowship that we will have with God and with people who are his followers in eternity. I think that's what's reflected here. But you know, David was probably, and this I don't want to build a church on this, but he was the youngest of Jesse's sons. He was oftentimes ridiculed even by his older brothers. He was given the job of tending sheep when they were out doing other things. He was also, he'd gone, been sent to check on his older brothers. And even when Samuel the prophet came to their household, David wasn't even there. He comes, Samuel, to anoint the new king of Israel, and he goes through and he says to Jesse, don't you have any more sons? Because none of these are the one that God has anointed. He said, yeah, we've got one more. He's, he's out taking care of the sheep. He said, we'll bring him. Well, he was the one that God had selected. But you know, I'm beginning to see there are both Jewish and even evangelical Christian scholars that are beginning to, to talk about the fact that Jesse may have had an illegitimate son and that son's name was David. All the other sons were the same mother. David's was not. And that's very likely so that when David said in Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me, he may have been talking more than about he was just a sinner from birth. That it was an illicit relationship. You see, David very likely all of his life had not been the favored one. We can tell that. He would have known what had been rejected and outcast like many 
of us in various ways. You may have been rejected or abused. It could have been by parents. It could have been by your siblings. It could have been by a spouse. It could be by people in authority, teachers, coaches, pastors. You may have know what David's talking about. Even though you're surrounded by enemies, you need to know that even if you have been rejected and abused, that there is one who loved you more than life itself. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is your good shepherd. Will you trust him? Will you follow him? You know, there is a man in history, his name is William Wilberforce. He was in Great Britain. He became a part of the parliament. Five, five years into his time in parliament, he came face to face with this good shepherd. His name is Jesus. And his life was radically changed. And he began to, to, to work to enact legislation that would help better human rights. And in particular, he labored for 40 years for the abolition of slavery throughout the British Empire. And then in 1826, he had to step down from his role because of his poor health. He had been a frail and an unhealthy person all of his life. And even though he had lobbied for and worked for the abolition of slavery, he was ridiculed, he was rejected, he was abused. As I have read history, there's even been attempts on his life, assassination attempts to get rid of this guy. In 1826... He had to step down from Parliament having lobbied for 40 years and not having seen the result of it. And then seven years later, in 1833, he was given word that it was sure to pass through the Parliament the Abolition of Slavery Act. And three days later, he died physically. But I would argue that he lived, and he lived abundantly, and he lived powerfully all of that time. Because he was new that he was following the good shepherd. And he was doing the work that God had placed him here on this earth to do. The Lord was his shepherd. In no way should he want. Even though he was beset by enemies, the Lord was his shepherd. The Lord was his gracious and benevolent host. And he had food to eat, so to speak, that they knew not of. Thank God for William Wibbleforce and so many other people like him who have followed the good shepherd and who have sought to enact work and to work for the rights of others that cannot and are able to speak for themselves. That's a picture of who you and I can be in Christ if we follow the Good Shepherd. I hope that this passage has been something that you've heard perhaps anew. I hope that it's something that's encouraged your heart. And that you know that there is, no matter how you may be rejected, no matter what valley of the shadow of death you're walking through, no matter how fearful you may be that you won't have enough or that you don't know the way, that there is a good shepherd who is guiding you. Will you follow him? I'm going to ask, you know, this is something we can have the intent to do, but, but we need his power to be able to do it. So would you just pause with me as we pray and ask him to accomplish what only he can. Let's pray together. Father God, I want to thank you for the truth of your word. I want to thank you for this psalm that David wrote so many years ago. And I pray that your spirit would take it into each of our lives and you would use it in such a way that it encourages our hearts, it strengthens us, and it helps us to follow you in a way that's both honoring to you and is also healthy for us. 
Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is the good shepherd. And thank you that he cares enough about us that he would even lay down his life. And he died on a cross for sins he didn't commit, but for us. And yet he was gloriously and marvelously raised from the dead three days later to live in us and to empower us to to think differently, to live differently, and to not have a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and of love and of a sound mind or self-control. Thank you, Father, for this. I pray that as we reflect on this, that you would use it to strengthen our hearts, that we might also be a blessing to others. For we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.